When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 13, and we're recording on November 17th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> it, it is so sunny and cold here. It's kind of delightful. I made myself like hot chocolate right before oh. I sat down to record this, so I'm having a very winter moment. That sounds amazing. I it's been raining over here nonstop, which I guess I should be used to <laughs> by now. It's been nonstop. Like I'll no. I, I haven't been outside that much. I am definitely a shut in during the weekdays, so <laughs> I haven't experienced actual weather. I just hear it outside my window. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. I know. Well, I saw that you went to the National Book Awards. So, oh my gosh, I did. So it cool. was so well. Well, I didn't go to the actual award ceremony. Okay. My uh, one of our contributors went to the awards to cover them, but I I have been lucky enough to be on the guest list for the after party for a few years, and they get a DJ, and there's a dance floor and a photo booth, <laughs> and and Jasmine Ward like brushed by me on her way to somewhere oh. else, and then Patricia Lockwood was right behind me in line for a drink, and I was like, I'm so fancy. <laughs> That is amazing. I don't know how I would act in those situations. I'd I be mean, a you just pretend nerd. they're not there because, like, they don't know you. They don't want to talk. Like, you're not. They're not there to talk to you. To be fawned over, obsessive. Exactly. <laughs> I just try to like keep my cool and be like, oh yeah, NBD. Like, I'm just standing next to Patricia Lockwood. It's fine. Smart. <laughs> that's that's the way to go. Keep it cool. <laughs> Look like you're famous, I, too. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like anybody's going to mistake me for somebody yeah, famous. No, you never know. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, okay, so before we get into... This is the second of our holiday shows. Today we did uh, write-ins. So we have questions from you all, and we are going to answer them um, with your holiday questions. And before we do that, I'm going to mention one more time, because you still have time, we are doing a bookstore gift card giveaway. You can get a $500 gift card to the bookstore of your choice. You get to pick if you go to bookriot.com slash bookstore giveaway. It's open until November 26th, and it is also open worldwide so that internationally, like, we will figure out the exchange rate. So if you have a favorite bookstore, you should definitely enter. That's bookriot.com slash bookstore giveaway. What, what? That is the most awesome giveaway ever. I know. I can't wait. I, hopefully the whoever wins post pictures because I need to see that whole. I know. Tag Riot Grams and I will absolutely regram that because we are all excited to see $500 worth of books because we're nerds. <laughs> <laughs> yup. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about our first sponsor, which is The City of Brass by S.A. Shukraborthy. And this is a story as a con woman in the streets of 18th century Cairo 
Nairi does not believe in magic. She relies on her wits and her healing talents to survive, but when she accidentally summons a sly, darkly mysterious Jin warrior during one of her cons, she's forced to question everything she believes. He tells her that across the hot, windswept sands of the Middle East lies Devabad, the legendary city of brass, home of six Jin tribes, and simmering with old resentments threatening Nari's ancestral home. There's a reason they say to be careful what you wish for. This is a spellbinding debut novel uh, for readers of The Gollum and the Ginny and The Grace of Kings and Uprooted, which was uh, totally interesting to me, and we'll have some talk about Uprooted later. Um, and it was inspired by the author's extensive research into 18th century Middle Eastern history, culture, and folklore. Sounds super interesting. I've seen this around everywhere lately. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. That was The City of Brass by S.A. Shukraborthy. And I guess we can go right into our questions. Yeah. So question one is from Emily. And she says, many years ago, I read and fell in love with Ted Chiang's Stories of Your Life and Others. I love the different types of stories spanning all kinds of subjects from religion to language to philosophy. It blew my mind. Is there an author out there that can fill the Ted Chiang-sized hole in my heart? So, Jen, why don't you go? Yeah, it's such a good question because that story collection is amazing. Um, that, in case you didn't know, is the collection that the the title story, Stories of Your Life, is actually the inspiration for the movie Arrival, which came oh, yeah. out this past year. Yeah. Um, amazing. Okay, I couldn't pick. I, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it was too hard to pick, so I have two for you. Um, the first is Ken Liu's Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, which I read... A while back, so the exact details of the collection are a little bit lost in my head, aside from, like, the title story, Paper Menagerie, is just beautiful. Um, It's about a young boy whose mother is an immigrant to America and doesn't really speak English, and one of the ways that they connect is she makes him little origami creatures and then, like, breathes them into life. Like, she, like, blows some air into them and they're alive. Um, (laughs) And and it's, like, a beautiful story about parents and children and generational differences, but also it has that type of touch of magic. Then there's this one called the book making habits of select species. That's like, it's like a weird, like sci-fi, like almost like a catalog of like aliens, but it's about books and text. So it's like very meta. Um, and, and all of the stories are like that. They're really, they're really high concept, but some of them are like very rooted in, in life and mundane experiences. And then some of them are like really heady and intellectual and thinky. So it has a lot of those same feelings that, um, that the Ted Chang collection has. So that's The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories by Ken Liu. And then the second one, real quick, is uh, China Mievel's Three Moments of an Explosion. This collection is bonkers. There's like... There's like 28 stories in here and some of them are kind of horror and some of them are more like speculative fiction and then some of them are more science fiction. But China Mievel like has a degree in philosophy or something along with like, he's like five degrees. Um, And yeah, and so all of his work is very 
conceptual at its heart. And some of them, like the one of the main stories is about a little boy who um, he wakes up one morning and like over London, there are all these floating icebergs. They're just like icebergs floating around. So the kids, of course, are like running around on the ground, like following them and like trying to figure out like what's going on. And then... Um, a team of like, you know, explorer daredevil people like like make an illegal landing on one and like make a documentary about it. So like that kind of thing. But then there's another one that's like very sort of like it's about a bunch of anarchists at a at a convention, like an anarchy convention, which is just in and of itself a really hilarious premise. Um but then like the things are turning into dust and there's like a fantastical reason. So it it's super weird. It's super smart. It's super interesting. There's one super action packed one that has like therapist assassins. It's really <laughs> weird, really delightful. Some of them will give you nightmares, just like fair warning. Um, but yeah, he's also got a real range. Um, so he's just all over the place in terms of like what you're going to get out of his stories. So that's three moments of an explosion by China Mabel. Bonkers is always the correct adjective to use when talking <laughs> about China Evil. <laughs> right? Like, that's his specialty. <laughs> He's amazing, though. He's amazing. Um, so I went really old school, and I went with Bloodchild and Other Stories by Octavia Butler. And I thought about this because Octavia Butler seems like the sort of person who was always looking around her and thinking about everything she saw, like, from the most mundane things to like also some high concepts and she was just like everything she wrote was incredible so this is a collection of seven short stories and two essays by butler and uh sort of thematically the stories cover everything from pregnancy and maternal instincts immigration working a crappy job and you know sort of coping with the monotony of life especially as a blue collar worker um government imprisonment, relationships with God, communication. It's like everything. Everything is in there. Um, and the collection felt like a place where Butler really stretched her imagination and considered like a bunch of topics. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're you're looking for. So the wonderful part is that as she's discussing these ideas, she's framing them around the strange and fantastic. So for instance, there's a story where people are no longer able to communicate using their voices because of a virus that destroyed humans' ability to speak. This is actually one of my favorite stories. Um, and then there's a story about class and a social caste system created by a genetic disease. There is a story about human impregnation and fostering by an alien species. So there's a lot to dig into with all seven stories, and they read very quickly, though. So it's not like um, none of them are very long, but there's a lot to think about after reading them. Uh, the essays also are sort of an added bonus where Butler talks about herself and her writing and reading life um, and about often being the only black person writing science fiction in her community. And she also included an essay for writers, anyone who wants to pursue a career in that craft. I know this doesn't necessarily have to do with your question, but these are things that jumped out to me as like sort of extra amazing things about this collection. Um, but there's a lot of real talk about the process and challenges writers face and throughout the book and, and in the afterwards from Butler following the stories, there's a lot of real talk about how she came up with the stories and about her fears and experiences and sort of like the philosophies behind the stories. So it's just the most solid collection I've ever come across. 
and it's definitely one of my all-time favorites. I think you'll enjoy it. And that was Blood Child and Other Stories by Octavia Butler. You can never go wrong with Octavia Butler, like, ever. <laughs> I know. She's just, she's incredible. All right. Our next question is from Sarah with no H who says, do you read differently during the holidays? I find that I reach for cozy mysteries, something I don't read the rest of the year. I also tend to pick up Christmas themed romances. Again, this is not my usual reading material as I usually read fantasy. Uh, My favorite genre is what I call literary fantasy with covers that don't have pictures of people. (laughs) That's that's a nice (laughs) subgenre. I also enjoy literary fiction, but fantasy is my usually my usual jam. I'm really wondering if other people find themselves switching it up around the end of the year for holidays, breaks, etc. All right, Sharifa, what is your holiday reading habit? Well, it's funny. I I wrote down that I liked that I really like dark fantasy during the holidays. And I think um, the more I thought about it, I think I just like extremes. So it either has to be like really dark fantasy, like along the lines of The Good House by Tanana Reevdu, the the book I was talking about in a recent episode, where it's really dark. There are some really disturbing things that happen and you're not sure there's going to be a happy ending. Probably not, maybe. Um, But then on the other side of the spectrum, I also enjoy reading something completely, it would have to be something completely whimsical and lighthearted, like along the lines of a Tiffany Aching book by Terry Pratchett, for instance, where it's like, mm. you know, witches going around and, you know, doing things and meeting the fairy folk and they're all like wild and mad and interesting and funny. Um, so it definitely, I do feel like I have a sort of holiday spirit read, but I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that this year. I'm probably going to be reading whatever is <laughs> on my list. <laughs> because my list is mad I wish I could I don't have like I feel like other people have real set in stone traditions like we literally just posted something on Book Riot today about how somebody also reads like romance anthologies for instance and I don't think I'm that specific I know what makes me feel comfortable there's something like about being surrounded by loved ones, whether they're family or friends, and being completely stuffed and relaxing where I feel like, ooh, now I can really dig into some dark material or let me just revel in the luxury of being completely content with a whimsical book. But that was that was how it used to be. That was how it was. <laughs> how about you? Bef- before you were reading for a living. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I the answer is yes, except kind of because so I think I mentioned on the last show that I do a reread of Connie Willis's Miracle and other Christmas stories pretty much every year around the holidays. And also I tend to reread um, The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. That specific I mean, that's the name of the whole series, but that specific volume, um, it takes place around Christmas at Will Stanton's and like the Welsh countryside. And it's just like Mm -hmm. the most like winter Christmas of ever. Um, But what I find is that during the holidays and like particularly sort of post Thanksgiving to early February, I have an almost physical craving to reread books. Like that is the time of year when it is like, 
I just want to go back to my shelves and pull out favorites. Like there are, I'm looking at my shelf right now from across the room and I could tell you like, there are like five books right now that are like, reread me. Like it's, <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's like a compulsion, except that the hard part is I can't, um, because, <laughs> because between get booked, uh, which, you know, is weekly, like all year round. And I often have to do some research reading for that. And then, you know, now SFF, yeah, when we have themes and sometimes I ha- already have books, but sometimes I don't. Um, and then also like if I'm writing stuff for the site, like it's really hard to indulge in that rereading preference because there's just so much to keep up with for work. Um, and I remember thinking the other day, I was like, what was it like when I didn't have to do that? Because <laughs> even when I was a bookseller, like I was a bookseller for like 10 years, And even then, like, you kind of have to be, you have to be staying on top of what's new so you can recommend it to customers, let them know how it is. Like, it it, it just, I I remember that once upon a time I could reread whenever I wanted to, but it's been a long time since I was allowed to do that. Um, And I think for me, it sounds like the route is similar, though, to what um, both our question asker and Trafer are talking about. Like, it's all about the comfort read, like, right? Like, you want to create specific feelings in your brain. And for me, rereading is like, oh, I know exactly what feelings I'm going to get when I pick up this book. And those are the feelings I want right now. Uh, so I think, you know, the the root is the same. It's just the manifestation of that. That's a little bit different, you know, depending on who you are and, and, and what you what your reading habits are like. So. So, yeah, like in my in my dream holiday season, I can just like reread old stuff for three months. <laughs> well, you know how I feel about rereading. So, <laughs> Mine definitely manifests a different way, but that does sound, that sounds absolutely comforting if I was Yeah, right. I know you're not. It's so funny. The rereading question is so interesting to me. It is. It is. Because people have real strong feelings about it. I know. I feel like I don't meet as many people who are completely against rereading. I mean, I'm not against it for other people, obviously. I just can't do it myself. Yeah, I, it's literally unfathomable to me to think about never rereading a book again. I like I, especially because when I was a kid, like I just didn't, I couldn't always have new books, so I ended up rereading the ones I had so many times just to give myself something to read. Like I, I literally don't know how I would have read if I couldn't reread when I was a kid. Maybe that's the thing because I'm a really slow reader, so it takes oh. me – it always took me like I never had a problem. Like when I got a new book, I was probably still reading the one I had before. <laughs> Maybe there's a connection there. Who knows? I bet that's right because I am a super fast reader yeah. and I tear through books really quickly. Um, so, yeah, when I was a kid, like my parents literally were like – no, there's no money for new books. Like either you can go to the library or you can read something that you already have. And the library didn't always have anything that I wanted. You know, like I went through my library stuff real quick too. So yeah, rereading was the only way to get the fix. Wow. <laughs> that explains a lot. I feel like I've learned something now. I know. I feel like we've identified a thing we that's really super have. interesting. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we have, it's time for another sponsor. Our second sponsor today is Rosemary. 
Unmarked by Livia Blackburn. This is a smart and sweeping fantasy with a political edge and a slow-burning romance. Um, It follows two people who, at first glance, should not uh, get along very well. One of them, Ziva, is a healer, um, but she has fallen victim herself to a deadly plague, and she knows that it's only a matter of time before she succumbs. And so now she's sort of like cut, cut off from other people and unable to practice medicine. And then uh, Dinius is a soldier who was captured and tortured by the um, Amparan Empire. Um, And now all he wants is revenge against his captors. So he has escaped and reunited with his tribe. And he will do anything to free them from the rule of the empire, um, including undertaking a very risky plan. So he and Ziva uh, are thrust together on a high-stakes mission to spy on the capital. And um, they could not be more different, but as they embark on this adventure, they find a lot of common ground. So this is a fantasy that, it's a YA fantasy, Um, it's about intrigue and betrayal, what it means to truly fight for freedom. If you are a fan of An Ember in the Ashes um, or the Lumetier Chronicles, this is definitely one you are going to want to check out, and it is the first in a series. So that is Rosemarked by Livia Blackburn. Thank you for sponsoring this show. Fabulous. Let's move on to question three. And this comes from Marie from Poland. Hello out there all the way in Poland. I hope you are not too cold. Um, She asks, do you have any recommendations for uprooted read-alikes, particularly (laughs) with the fairy tale feeling, strong characters, and really cool magic? And she has a second question. In the spirit of New Year's resolutions, how are you going to keep track of your reading and or what is your system right now? So, Jen, why don't you enlighten us? Oh, yes. Okay. I'm so excited about this question. Both halves of the question. (laughs) I like all of it. Um, So the first part, uh, recommendations for uprooted read-alikes. I picked for you Winter Song by S.J. Jones, which is, or is it J. Jones? I'm unsure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But I don't this know is, <laughs> yeah, it's it kind of is like, um, it's like Labyrinth, except in book form and longer and like also more complicated. Um, it's about a 19 year old girl named Liesel who lives like somewhere in what read to me as like oldie time Austria or Germany. And she grew up playing in the nearby forest, and she had a friend um, who said he was the Goblin King, and but he like was also you know like took on the form of a young person and played with her, and they were just friends together. And as she got older, she had to help um, run the family inn and take care of her siblings. And her parents are kind of like like her dad is kind of useless, and her mom is overworked. Um, so she kind of left behind that forest, you know playtime and um she has come to believe that it was just like an imaginary friend like a figment of her imagination based on the fairy tales that her grandmother used to tell her but then her sister kata is taken by the goblins so like not only are they real but they have kidnapped her sister um and the goblin king is like whelp somebody's got to come marry me so you know if you don't want it to be your sister like you have to come 
and and be my bride. Uh, so she makes a bargain and goes down into the underground, and it is both about her trying to escape, but falling in love at the same time with the Goblin King and trying to unravel the story of like who he really is, what is really going on with this like fairy tale trade, um, and it's also deeply about music. She's a really talented composer who, because she's a woman. And, like, the setting is very sort of, like, realistic historically. Like, women aren't given the same opportunities and, you know, all of the family's uh, hopes are pinned on her brother who's a talented, I think he's a violinist. Um, So she, like, she just doesn't, she can't catch a break, basically. Um, So it, it, for me, it has a lot of the same feelings as Uprooted because it's about a woman who is not expected to do great things, but she, like, feels a drive inside of her. And um, it has that sort of fairy tale retelling component to it that Uprooted has. And it has all the feelings in it as well, which I felt like Uprooted did well also. So that's Winter Song by S.J. Jones. And it is the first in a series. We are getting a sequel. And it, the date has been announced. I believe it's Shadow Song is the title. Yes. And February 6th is the publication. Oh, so I know bad. a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people were really frustrated that Uprooted was only one book. So this one is two. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those uh, people. Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you do your pick and then I'll talk about my spreadsheet. Okay, cool. Um, I went with The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden because I was in this exact same position after I finished reading Uprooted and I was like, I mean, there's one part of me that's always glad when something is a standalone because I'm really bad at keeping up with series, but it was such a good book that I just really didn't want it to end. Um, but I, so I found The Bear and the Nightingale shortly after because I was specifically looking for a read-alike for Uprooted, um... And I sort of took comfort in this story. The story follows Vasilisa, who, like, uprooted, uh, uprooted's Agnieszka is really strong-willed and independent. She also has a connection to the forest surrounding her village. And the story is based on the Russian fairy tale Vasilisa the Beautiful, if you hadn't already guessed that. Um, but the story has all the elements of a fairy tale with the mother who dies and the stepmother who steps in. And then Vasya and her stepmother do not get along you know, as fairy tale tradition is. Uh, so while Vasya is wild and she leads this, a fairly humble lifestyle, her stepmother arrives from, from city life. She's sort of from royalty and she also has thoughts about Vasya's heathenish ways and her stepmother's ideas about these sorts of, I guess it's pagan rituals still maintained by some of the village people and Vasya's own family. Um, they all sort of have her sort of ideas about this, these rituals and superstitions end up having really grave results for both the family and the village. And Vasya knows something bad will happen if they don't appease the spirits of the forest who exist unseen. And even though everyone can see that some bad business is happening, like bad luck is happening across the board to people in this village a priest comes into the picture and he sort of turns the villagers minds and Vasya is the only one who sees and believes in the spirits so everything rests on her shoulders but 
All sorts of tampering from other people interferes with her work to get people to see. And to make things more complicated, a winter spirit is drawn to Vasya, and she has to figure out what he wants from her. And you can tell straight away there's something different and otherworldly about Vasya, but it's not all spelled out right away. Uh, but I just thought it was a beautifully told story with lots of complex characters. It is a fairy tale, but everyone isn't necessarily simplified into good and bad necessarily, uh, which is what I liked about Uprooted as well. I love the sort of good traditional fairy tale, especially one that leans toward folktale. But I also really enjoy rich, luxurious prose and a story with a lot of layers. So something beyond like the Grimm brothers or whatnot. <laughs> yeah. And, and you get both with this book. You get sort of the familiar fairy tale tropes and you also get like this really rich story um, with a rich folktale history behind it. And the second in the series is out in December I have not read it. It's on my shelf and on my TBR, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. So if that sounds like it's the sort of thing you're looking for, that was The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. Okay, so keeping track of reading. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I I have been tracking my reading. I like I'm delighted by spreadsheets just for the <laughs> record. And I have been tracking my reading for let's see. It's since like 2013 or or 2012. 2012 was the first year I started. Like well, that's not even true. When I was a teenager and I still have this notebook, I I have a big journal where I wrote down what I was reading and little thoughts about them. Um and I still have it. One of these days I will digitize that. But yeah, so so I've had this spreadsheet for like yeah, since 2012, but it's it's evolved into a three-part system. Um so the first part is as I finish a book, I put it in a list on my phone because I don't always have like it's you're not always like spreadsheet capable. And I don't always have my bullet journal handy. So the first place my reading goes is into this little list, like just in the native lists app um, on my phone. And then at the end of the month, I put them all into my monthly bullet journal spread because I'm a bullet journaler as well. Surprise. And so then I can see like what I read in a given month, which I think is super interesting because there tends to be sort of ups and downs in how many books I read or finish rather. I only count books I finished. I don't count books that I don't finish. Um, so how many books I finished and like was, was there any similarities in them? Did I get on a kick? Like that kind of thing. And then they all go into the spreadsheet so that I have like, you know, several years worth of what I have read in a given year. And I have columns for things like, you know, diversity of authors and um, diversity of characters in the books. Um, I have country of origin because I noticed a while back that I was really only reading U.S. or U.K. authors. And I wanted to do better. And it helps me to have sort of a visual of like, well, how how few am I reading? Um, and then I also track genres so I can see like what my genre spread was. And then every year um, around the end of December, early January, I make a series of um pie charts. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Because goodness. I am such a freaking nerd. I do this every year. I make pie charts showing like what my distributions were compared to previous years. I know this is like unnecessarily complicated. I know it is, but it gives me great joy. <laughs> and it's super useful for things like Get Booked or SFF. Yeah, where I'm like, I know I read a book two years ago about a mermaid, but like, what was it? And I can go to my spreadsheet and probably find it. So. 
Well, I have to say I am completely impressed by your system <laughs> and the fact that you tracked your books that long ago. Like, if I could have some sort of magical Christmas gift, it would be that a big tome full of all the books I read, like just a list of the books I read as a kid till now oh, yeah. would appear on my doorstep because I have never been good at tracking and I know I like whined about it a little bit on the last episode and you were kind enough to reach out with your system, <laughs> which I really appreciated. Because My I, overblown system. <laughs> I was like, wow, she's really passionate about this. <laughs> I didn't know about the pie chart thing, though. That yeah. is like a whole new level. <laughs> but I, I definitely feel, especially now, that it is really important to track my reading because I have started to do more podcasts and I'm always like, oh my goodness, let me go scrounge through like what little I put into my Goodreads and what I tracked on yeah. like Litzy and like, yes. oh, maybe I wrote something on a scrap of paper somewhere one day <laughs> and it just doesn't work. So this is definitely on my New Year's resolution list along with like 5,000 other bookish resolutions. I'm hoping I like <laughs> at least do one. And if there's one that's the most important, it's probably this one. So I'm probably going to do something similar to your system, except not as extensive. <laughs> like I was thinking more about the bullet journaling scheme and recording books that way and for me like I mean I talk about whimsy a lot and that's just the sort of person I am I'm it either has to be a really silly method like and kind of funny and jokesy or it has mm -hmm. to be completely bare bones like for instance just when I track my daily tasks I mm -hmm. Like, I started to try and use all of these super complicated, very high-functioning systems, and now I literally just use Reminders, that, that default app on my iPhone. Mm -hmm, That's how I track. Mm -hmm. So now I think, like, I have to just... It's either going to be just writing it down in my bullet journal and, like, having, for instance, like you said, like a space where I put in what I've read for the month and... I was thinking maybe I could make it into like a little comic of a bookshelf or a little library so that I feel like some like encouraged to write down what I read because it means I can draw another book on my imagination or my imaginative library of my dreams. Yes. So that's sort of like probably the direction I'm going to head in. The other thing I could probably do is just go I'm always in Goodreads um not because I'm reviewing books because I can't I can't handle that sort no. of situation I don't do it um but I'm always in Goodreads looking up books so I feel like every time I go in I could just make sure to mark whatever book I've just read as read that is all I have to do just so I know what I've read and maybe along the way I'll get more involved with like writing a little synopsis about the book and taking it step by step. So yeah, it's, it's a work in progress, as you can tell from the way I'm talking about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so. so I don't do the synopses anymore, though. Like I, okay. I cannot be bothered to write a thing about every book I've read anymore because I read uh, usually around two books a week. And yeah. like, 
I, I just, wow. no, there's no time. There's just no time for that nonsense anymore. Yeah. Um, okay, but what you were telling me, so the drawing, you were th- it reminded me of when I first started bullet journaling, my friend and I were doing it together and she ordered a bunch of stickers from, you know, there's like a billion Etsy sites oh, yeah, about bullet journaling those. and they have all these stickers. And she got us both these like, bookshelf stickers where it was just like a like a very basic line drawing of a shelf of books that had no titles on the spines and they were sort of arranged in different like like some of them were stacked sideways and some of them were stacked horizontal and you could like write in the title and then like color it and I found that super delightful so I bet um if you like did a doodle it would be super fun I think so too and now you've sort of given me encouragement to go on a sticker stationary oh, shopping man. spree <laughs> be careful be I so know. careful <laughs> I know. you can get sucked in there's a lot of really amazing stickers it's so dangerous it's the most dangerous thing in the world all right okay. um so <laughs> <laughs> so on to our fourth question um which is from Victoria, who says, My mother recently discovered the genre of romanticy and the world of C.L. Wilson. Since this is the first book she has read in a while, I would love to give her something along the lines of romanticy, where romance is part of the story, but not the plot. First, Sharifa, I have to ask you, did you Google romanticy? Because I had to. I didn't, but I almost made the mistake of thinking she wanted a romance book with fantasy, and I was <laughs> glad I reread that question. So what did romanticy say? Well, so I it, I couldn't really find a good Google definition. So then I started asking around, and the consensus was it was a, a romance that was high fantasy, okay. like not not like vampires necessarily, but like swords and elves and magic and like medievally fantasy. That makes I think I've come across those. Like I haven't read any of them, but I can yeah. see the covers in my head. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what she's talking about. Um, So what I ended up choosing was kind of, it's definitely not romanticy, but it has romance in it, and it's a fantasy. So um, I chose The Ghost Bride by Yangtze Chu, and if you can gift an audiobook to your mother, I would definitely go for it with this one, because the author, Chu, reads the story, and she has this magnificent voice that it's just perfectly suited for the story. Um, so I read this on audiobook, and this is sort of a Austin-esque romance with ghosts and manners, and people compared it to Spirited Away, and while it is about traveling to the spirit world, it's much eerier, in my opinion, than Spirited Away. Um, and of course, it the main character is an adult, so... Uh, The story takes place in Malacca, which is a Portuguese state in Malaysia, but this is the 1890s when Malaysia was part of Malaya and the British were the ruling class in that country. And this this is also a time when opium was a big problem in that part of the world. And the father of the main character, Lilan, is addicted to the drug. So they were once a wealthy family until smallpox came around and killed Lilan's mother and left her father kind of bereft and disfigured. So he's still grieving years later. Um, Her mom died when Lilan was a child. But Lilan wasn't affected directly by smallpox, but the course of her life is, and her father ended up squandering their money, and she didn't get much chance to mix it up with the other young ladies because her father didn't think to introduce her around and follow the customs of the time. He basically, like, shut himself into his office and did who knows what, wrote poetry to 
um, her dead mother. Uh, so she has sort of a difficult, lonely upbringing, uh, but she's still living a sort of a somewhat genteel life, even though they don't have much money at all. But then her father hits her with this proposal. This very wealthy family came to him and asked if his daughter would be their son's ghost bride. So as a ghost bride, she would marry, Lelon would marry the deceased son of this wealthy family, and she would be a sort of gift to him in the afterlife. And her family practices Buddhism, uh, but casually, and many of the Chinese families in their community believe in the spirit world. So there's a lot in this story about what is and is not lucky and about how to properly deal with the spirit world, especially from her nanny who took care of Lilan's mother before her. So she's very old and she has like a lot of superstitions and she's always worried about Lilan and she knows that Lilan is supposed to be this sort of young woman in this sort of company and already getting marriage proposals, but she understands that things have not worked out that way and she's also the only one who knows that ever since the ghost bride proposal Lilan's been plagued by nightmares that take her to the spirit world where she's sort of incessantly wooed and hounded by the ghost son who is Lim Chin Ching and he turns out to be an absolutely awful person. He claims to have a claim on her but Lilim can't figure out how that could be possible because the proposal hasn't been finalized and the spirit world is just completely creepy and full of puppet servants and hollow luxuries. But the real romance of the story, because obviously this isn't the sort of romance <laughs> your mom wants to read about a horrible ghost son. The real romance enters the picture when Li Lan meets this mysterious man at the home of Lim Chin Ching's family. And she can't stop thinking about him. And he seems to share her feelings. But she learns some things about his identity that make her realize they can't be matched. But they keep meeting in these somewhat secret ways and there's a lot of tension between them because we don't know, like, will they, won't they? And her blossoming feelings about him start to come out and she doesn't know how to deal with them. And this is sort of her romantic awakening because she hasn't really thought about young men in this way before. Um... And I don't want to tell you too much about him because there's a lot of intrigue about his character and you don't really hear about it until like 10 chapters in. Um, so I don't want to give it away, but there's a lot of romance between them and there's a lot of questioning whether it'll happen and you don't know if this haunting by this ghost son is going to completely ruin everything because it definitely feels that way through most of the book. So I really enjoyed this. And if um, that's enough romance for your mother, it's The Ghost Bride by Yangtze Chu. Horrible Ghost Son is like my band name. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. You could have that's like a good one. <laughs> sort of gothy post-punk yeah. music. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I picked two again. I'm sorry. Like they, we don't have a rule about it. Like we don't get booked. So now I'm just like, la, 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 la. Whatever um, you okay. want. So <laughs> I picked one YA and one not YA. Um, the YA one that occurred to me is The Wrath and the Dawn by Renee Adier, which is the first in a series. Um, and it is a 
fantastic. Well, Sherazade is already fantastical. So it's a retelling. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a rewriting of the story of Sherazade from um, A Thousand and One Nights. And there is like a murderous king who um, he's 18 and every night he has a new bride and then every morning she is strangled ritually. Um, And the main character, Sharzad's best friend, is uh, selected and taken to be the king's bride and killed. And so she decides that like she's she's done like she's she's she takes a vow of vengeance and volunteers to be his next bride and she's like i am gonna kill this this guy um (laughs) and so so she does manage to survive her first night and then nights after that um and she is telling him stories but also she is finding that the king is not who she thought he was um and she is starting to fall for him and she's like this is the worst. He killed my best friend. He is a monster. He has killed like hundreds of young women. I cannot have feelings for him except that I do. It's and like also I'm going to kill him, but this is all very complicated now. <laughs> um and in the meantime, one of her uh best friends from childhood who ha- is a guy who has romantic feelings for her, um is plotting like a rebellion cuz you know, seeing Sherzad get taken to the palace is like the last straw for him. So it's a little bit of a love shape as we like to call it. There's a little bit of a love triangle going on. Um and and things are definitely like complicated, like hashtag complicated. And it's beautiful and it's atmospheric and like you really feel sort of just sucked into this whole thing. Um, and yeah, I think uh, Adie does like a really great job with the world building and the setting and making you feel like you're there and making the feelings like these super complicated feelings make sense for each of the characters. Um, and then if she likes it, there's a bunch. There's, there's, uh, so the second the second one's definitely out. I don't know that the third one is out yet. But yeah, The Rose and the Dagger came out last year. So and there's a couple of like novellas in the series as well. So there's more where that came from. Um if if Wrath and the Dawn works for her. So that's Wrath and the Dawn by Renee Adier. And then the adult one I thought, I mean, so Wrath and the Dawn does have sex, but it's kind of like fade to black. It's not super explicit. Um which a lot of romance has more explicit sex. And one of my favorite series is that is not a romance, but has a ton of sex and love in it is the Cushiel's uh, Dart series by Jacqueline Carey. Um, and the main character, Fedra, was, it lives in this world where it's very much inspired by sort of medieval Europe. Um, but here, uh, sex work is like a religious calling. Um, and Fedra has been trained from a young age um, to uh, become like a, basically a sex worker. Um, but she also has been trained to be a spy. Um, and so when she like, you know, reaches 18 and is like getting called into service, she also is getting involved in all of these court politics. Um, she picks her patrons. Uh, her mentor uh, is a nobleman who's like got her on very specific missions. And so they pick her patrons based on like what information they want to get. Um, and in the meantime, they hire this sort of night bodyguard guy for her because she's putting herself in some very dangerous situations and they have a will, they won't, they plot line. Um, and it is like, it's one of the best 
sort of court politic novel series is that's also a fantasy that I've read. Um, and it also has like some of the most feminist interpretations like Game of Thrones is all about women getting assaulted. Right. In mm. addition to court politics. And in this one, like women have all of the agency, which is a really refreshing thing in high fantasy. Like you don't always get it. Um, so I'm like waiting for HBO to make this into a series, like a TV series. Like I cannot, I mean, one day maybe, it'll happen maybe um and again this is a series so there's a bunch more in the books uh more books in the series if your mom likes it so that's cushiel's dart by jacqueline carey i actually have that on my tbr to talk about on a different podcast so i oh nice i know i love phaedra is my favorite there's three main characters as the series goes along like they each get three books and phaedra is my favorite for sure I will keep that in mind as I read it. It's a very long book, so it'll take me a Yes, bit. it is. It will take you a while. They're not. I think the mass market is like over a thousand pages yeah. long, possibly. It's not short. I saw like 32 hours, because I got the audio book, so I oh. saw like 32 hours, I think. Oh. <laughs> I'm down for it, though. I'm, I'm okay. Somebody else is reading it, so it'll go at a faster pace. Nice. Um, so I'm going to tell you about our third sponsor which is Renegades by Marissa Mayer. And this is about secret identities, extraordinary powers, and she wants revenge, he wants justice. The Renegades are a syndicate of prodigies, humans with extraordinary abilities, who emerged from the ruins of a crumbled society and established peace and order where chaos reigned. As champions of justice, they remain a symbol of hope and courage to everyone except the villains they once overthrew. Nova has a reason to hate the Renegades, and she's on a mission for vengeance. As she gets closer to her target, she meets Adrian, a renegade boy who believes in justice and in Nova, but Nova's allegiance is to the villains who have the power to end them both. And this is, of course, by Marissa Mayer, who's the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Lunar Chronicles, which we've talked about a little bit on this show. And it takes on the classic battle between good and evil and manages to make it completely fresh and unpredictable. Um, And this is sort of like a superhero story. So if you're into that, this is probably a good read for you. And thank you so much to Renegades by Marissa Mayer for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so we are on to our very last question. Um, And this is from Sarah with an H. She says, every year I try to get a sci-fi book for my uncle and I'm stumped this year. He's a retired scientist and the books I know he's previously enjoyed are Dark Matter and The Martian. He enjoyed sci-fi, but I think he prefers, but I think prefers things that have a basis in reality. I would like to get him something that he maybe hasn't heard of, but not too off the wall. What do you think, Jen? All right. I picked Infomocracy by Malka Older for this question because it takes place in like such a near future and it is so based on our like current, you know, there's not like a ton of new world building here. The big twist with Infomocracy is that um, democracy is now like micro democracy is a thing. So 
you can be part of a sentinel, which is a group of 100,000 people like in the same geographic area, and you vote from like a menu of possible governments. And since you're you're you know voting in such a small group, like the your neighbors, like literally potentially across the street, could have a different government from you. Um, and you know your city might be split between like several. Uh, so it it's like it's like a sort of a patchwork system that is supposed to, in theory, like distribute power more generally and offer citizens more options. And the people sort of you know, keeping track of it all is a company called Information, which is sort of like Google plus Facebook-ish. Um, and they are funded by, like, the results of this big suit. Um, and they they run the elections, and their job is to make sure that everybody has, like, actual facts during elections. So, like, you know, fake news is not a thing in this world because information's job is to, whenever somebody makes a claim that's not real, immediately offer the actual information to whoever might see the misinformation. And, of course, no system is perfect, and so there is definitely corruption in this world. Um, and the book follows three main characters. The first guy, Ken, is a campaign worker for a party called Policy First, um, and he really believes in the system, and he really believes in his party, um, but he's kind of doing, like, a little bit of recon work in addition to the campaigning, so he knows that, like, you know, there's a little bit of gray area, but he really does believe in what he's doing. And then there's another character, Domain, who is, like, the anarchist punk guy. He thinks the whole system is corrupt, and it's, like, burn it down to the ground, and he's part of this collective that, like, you know, plots, like, kind of, like, pranks on the system, um, and he you know knows some unsavory characters and then the third character who's my favorite is Mishima who is an information operative like she does like basically black ops for this um search engine slash corporation that runs the elections and I mean she really she's like she it's she's so interesting because she works for information, but she does, like, the dangerous, like, like she might actually have to, like, shoot somebody or, like, defend someone else from an assassination. So, like, she knows there's corruption, but she, like, believes in what she's doing, too. So all of these people have a very different take on what is going on, but they each believe so strongly that they're right. And watching the plot unfold from all of their different perspectives is just fascinating. Um, the second book came out this year. It's called Null States, and I loved it. So if you really wanted to go nuts, you could give him both of them. Um, they pair really nicely together. And yeah, it's it's like a really cool sort of thought experiment about what micro-democracy might look like and like what would be the problems and what would be the benefits and like how would you run it. So it's, it's a really thinky kind of book that also has a lot of great action. So I feel like that might appeal to his like science sensibilities. So that's Infomocracy by Malka Older. It's the first book in the Sentinel cycle, and the second one is called Null States. So fun. Um, I stole The Wanderers. You had remembered that <laughs> book, and I stole it. Uh, the Wanderers by Meg Howery. And The Wanderers was one of those books where after I was done reading it, I was like, huh, that was really new. Like, I had mm. never read anything quite like it before. So the story is centrally about a team of astronauts who are preparing for a trip to Mars. 
And they're the first expedition to land, or they will be the first expedition to land on Mars. The story takes place, I think, in the near future. Um, it's hard to tell, but I think it's the near future. But there's a lot about daily life that's modern day, but there are also, for instance, robots that help people suffering from Alzheimer's. So you can absolutely see this future. It's not like super future. Um, but anyway, the crew is Helen Kane, Yoshi Tanaka, and Sergei Kutsnetsov. I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. Kutsnetsov. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, and all three come from very different places and backgrounds. Like, Helen is an American woman who sees this as her last mission because she's been an astronaut for some time. Um, Yoshi's from Japan, but he was raised in England, and Sergei is Russian. And the expedition is funded by a private company, Prime Space, which totally taps into my contact obsession, which you may or may not already know about <laughs> from listening to a previous episode. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. There's something about that pre-space flight entering New Horizons anticipation I can't get enough of. It's like my version of reading sexual tension in a book. I just love it. Um, but in this story, Helen Yoshi and Sergei undergo a simulation of their journey to Mars. And even though they're trapped in this tiny space, um, space as in compartment, not necessarily outer space, with like little to do but re repetitive tasks, so much happens. So much happens in this story. So we become privy to their interior worlds, their regrets and their fears, and those bits of past, they really haven't been able to shake. And the sorts of things you think about when you're trapped in a canister with two strangers for an extended period of time and, you know, you have too much opportunity to chew on your thoughts and, oh yeah, you have to come to terms with the fact that there's not a low likelihood that you'll die in space on this mission. So your mortality is suddenly right before you. Um, but not only that, we also get to hear from their loved ones who are trying to move on with their lives while their mother, father, and husband are embarking on this massive and historic event. So we hear from Helen's daughter, who's an aspiring actress slash masseuse and, you know, sort of the waitressy actress type thing who's been in her mother's shadow since day one. And then there's Sergei's son who's coming to terms with and exploring his sexuality as a gay young man. And then there's Yoshi's wife who's, I think she's an engineer. Um, she's the one who builds those or designs those robots uh, that help people with Alzheimer's and memory issues. Um, and she's questioning Yoshi's love for and her his perceptions of her, basically. Um, and then there arrives this big harrowing question that underlies the simulation. And there's the potential for somebody to come unhinged as a result of being trapped together and from suffering something, you know, as simple as boredom. So there's a high potential for paranoia and there's a moment late in the book that to me felt like sort of the narrative equivalent of someone upending the dinner table in the middle of your <laughs> civilized conversation. Like, and I sort of expected something to happen. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, but because when I was reading this, somebody who had already read it was like, I need to know what you think about like the end or when you get toward the ending. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so there's a moment there. Um. And I don't mean that in a bad way, the whole upending the dinner table thing. I was completely enthralled and I love what Meg Howery did. Uh, but I know some people were like, wait, what? And I actually talked about 
uh, packing for Mars for the Read Harder podcast, um, our Book Riot insiders are privy to. And I mentioned that The Wanderers is a great fiction pairing for that nonfiction book about space travel and preparation, and I stand by that. Um, you realize how true to life the simulation in this novel is, and I just thought it was really impressive what Howery did. So that was The Wanderers by Meg Howery. And that's our show. It is. Hooray. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have thoughts about all of this stuff, um, questions for us, please feel free to email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. Uh, please also leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love to see your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find me mostly on Tumblr these days. It's jenirl.tumblr.com and that's Jen with two N's. And I can be found on Instagram. I'm at S-Zainab, Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.